give me uh, give me just a second here. We're gonna, you know, you guys know I love the whiteboard, but uh, there's no whiteboard here, so we're gonna gonna do something a little bit different. I've got these easels that we're gonna use. So, okay, <laughs> doing what we can. talk amongst yourselves, it's fine. Nothing to see here. Okay. It's close. I know some of you this is going to be really hard because I'm going to be off-center all morning, but I promise it's okay. Okay. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Philippians 2. That's where we're going to be reading this morning. And if not, it's going to be on the screen. Yes, this is so exciting. Okay. This is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. I am pumped this morning to be in such just a tiny amount of scripture. This is great. So it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you uh, haven't left us to, your, to ourselves, God, but that you have desired to reveal yourself to us. And we thank you for the authoritative way that you do that in the scriptures. Would you speak to us through them this morning? Amen. Okay, so uh, Donnie Osmond... Christy Yamaguchi, Bobby Bones, and Rashad Jennings. What do those four people have in common? Do any of you know? I'll give them to you one more time. Donnie Osman, Christy Yamaguchi, Bobby Bones, and Rashad Jennings. Julie? What is yes, they, are, they have all won Dancing with the Stars. Gold star for Julie. Uh, and I'm sure that way more of you knew that than we're willing to let on, but there's nothing to be ashamed of, okay? Uh, as we know, I'm all super into Survivor, so it's no shame here. Uh, yes, all Dancing with the Stars winners. Guys, do you know this show has been on since 2005? They are on their 30th season this year, so very impressive. And I don't know if you know, do you, if you know the premise of the show, okay? But the premise of the show is that you take a famous person who is bad at dancing, or like a mostly famous person who's bad at dancing, and then you pair that mostly famous person with a professional dancer. And then you make the pairs compete against each other. And there's like voting and judges and America also gets to decide. And it's a whole thing. Uh, but one of the joys, I would imagine, for people who watch the show is that you get to watch people improve in their dancing over the course of the season, right? Like at the beginning, no, none of the mostly famous people are good dancers. But by the end, people have been on this journey of transformation and they have become much better dancers. Okay. That's what Paul is calling us to this morning. <laughs> Uh, Paul is calling us to learn how to dance. He's calling us to grow relationally that we would mature in the way that we are actually interdependent on each other as a community because dancing requires interdependence, doesn't it? It requires, it requires relationship. There's give and take in dancing. And that give and take requires not just a, like a perfunctory performance, but it requires soul and heart. That's what makes it art, right? And it's captivating to watch people who are good dancers. 
That's why at various points, millions of people have tuned into this show. And what this scripture is telling us, what Paul is telling us this morning, and what he's been telling us throughout Philippians, is that if we are gonna be a people who mature in, what's the theme? Joy. If we're gonna be a people who mature in joy, that we're gonna have to grow as a community. That you, as an individual person, are gonna have to grow and mature relationally. And the point to which you are willing to engage in that is gonna determine the amount of joy that you're gonna be able to experience in your relationship with Christ and in your relationship with other people. It's not that there's not joy for you. That joy that Christ has for you is full, but the way that he calls us to participate in it is in relationship. I'm just gonna highlight a few of the ways you've already talked about that. So in verses four and five in Philippians, Paul says, always in every prayer of mine, I'm making all those prayers with joy. So he's telling us that he has a joy that's rooted in his relationship with these friends that he's writing to. In verse seven, he says that he holds them in his heart. In verse eight, he says he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And in verse nine, we talked about his prayer for the Philippian church, kind of at the beginning of this series. His prayer that people that the Philippians would abound more and more in love with knowledge and with discernment. That's what we're gonna be talking about this morning is that knowledge and discernment element of love. And then we talked about what it means to stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in verse 27. That as the gospel pushes out into our lives and out into our world, we need each other for that. In verse 25, Paul says that he's invested in the progress and joy in the faith in his, in his friends who are also believers, right? And we talked about the call to discipleship, the practice of discipleship, the rhythm of it with each other as a way that we experience joy in Christ. And what Paul says today in verse two, it's the, it's the main verb in this entire section of verses. And it says, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What Paul is telling the Philippian church is that there's a part of his joy that will become more full as this church learns to love each other and, and experience the unity of Christ. So he, think about this. His joy is in some way dependent on the joy and the love and the unity of this church that he's writing to. And, and that's not... That's not codependence in Paul, okay? This is an interdependence. This is a healthy kind of relationship that God desires for his church, that he desires for us. If, if you and I are gonna experience the fullness of the joy that God has for us, we have got to weave our lives together with the other people that we are walking in Christian community with. And if you've ever been in relationships, you ever been dancing with other people? <laughs> what you know is that interdependence is hard, isn't it? Yes, okay, well, I guess see everyone kind of nodding along with me. Yes, it's hard. Of course it is. It takes wisdom, it takes skill, it takes training. Just like those people on Dancing with the Stars, what do they do all week? They train. It's a practice of training. This relational, emotional maturity that, we that we're talking about is a journey in the Christian faith. 
Some people, it seems like, possess it more than others. It, maybe it's an innate trait that some people have, other people don't have. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a democratic need. We all need to grow up in our relational and emotional maturity for us to have the fullness of joy that Christ desires for us. If we're gonna fight for the gospel together, in each other's lives and in, and in our community, if we're gonna be in discipleship relationships where we're learning from each other, if we're gonna abound in knowledge, if we're gonna abound in love that's shaped by knowledge and discernment, what we, what we need is w- what Paul provides for us in these verses. Because in these verses, he's giving us a foundation for our relationships with each other. So that's what we're talking about today. The foundation that Paul gives us, that Christ gives us for our, rela- our relationships with each other. And there are, th- there are three points. Classic. Okay? There's the reality, the rub, and the remedy. The reality, the rub, and the remedy. And you guys, just for the record, I did not come up with these three points because they're alliterative, and I'm terrible at alliteration. This is, this is, these are Dave Burns' points. So there's some interdependence there with the, with the pastor team of learning from each other. So just couldn't take credit for that myself. Uh, so that's where we're going. The reality, the rub, and the remedy. Okay? So the reality. So we're going to talk about first. This is in verse three. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition, or the NIV says vain conceit, which is what I'm used to. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And we're going to focus for a second just on those first three words. Do nothing from. Okay. So the reality is that you and I are always living from somewhere that everything that we do is, is coming from our hearts. And our hearts, Paul is saying, can be in one of two places. But it's important first that we're wrapping our minds around that, that what Paul is addressing here is our motivations. And he's saying, your motivations matter. That in the ways that we relate to each other, what's happening in our heart, it matters. So do nothing from. So what are these places that we, can, that we can do from? The first is selfish ambition. Let's see how this goes. Nice. It's staying up. Okay, this is good. Selfish ambition or conceit. So this is the first place that Paul kind of lays out, that this is a place that we can be living our lives from. And let's just talk f- just for a minute about what these words mean. Okay, so selfish ambition. The idea here is, uh, is like rivalry or preeminence. That one of the places that we can often be operating as, as humans in the world is a place where, where what we're about is our own glory. Is our dedication to us getting recognized. It creates a kind of interpersonal competitiveness. It's a zero-sum, when when we're living in this place, the way that we see life is that it is a zero-sum game. And that if I'm going to win, somebody else has to lose. And if I'm losing, it means somebody else is winning. And that if I'm not looking out for my own interests, nobody is. And so I've got to become now fierce, ferocious in defending my self-interest. Because if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. It's like every time that you're on Amazon and you see a price that's too good to be true, right? What is your first thought? It's not true. There's somebody out there who's trying to scam me, right? 
And so I don't, I don't believe any of this. You're trying to get to the bottom of like, oh, I, I know. What it shows about us is that we know that people can't be trusted. And that for us to look out for our own interests is to be suspicious of the other people uh, in the world, of other people in the world. And that kind of perspective that's so pervasive for us, as you start to apply it in a community, what it does is it immediately turns everybody towards self-protection, doesn't it? That if you were in a group, whether it's at work, whether it's in a small group, or whatever kind of groups you're a part of, as soon as you realize that somebody in that group is looking out for their own interests, immediately that clues us in, now I've got to defend myself against you because I know that if you're looking out for your own interests, you're not looking out for mine, right? And it takes our communities and it makes them places where instead of being able to welcome other people in, we have to protect ourselves from each other. Could that happen in a church? Yes. I'm sure that you've experienced that. So that's, that's selfish ambition. Okay, let's talk for a second here about conceit or vain conceit. Another, another way to kind of think about that word is it's, it's the combination of the words empty and glory that it's someone looking for empty glory. But I will tell you that when you're looking for it, it doesn't always feel empty, does it? It's kind of the, the praise-seeking, the headline-grabbing, the credit-grubbing that we all do. And where that is often rooted is our own 100% confidence in our own opinions. Right? We may not be competing for bylines or credit on, on projects, but we may. But man, I will tell you what I'm often insisting on is that I want to be proved right. Like I, one, of, one, of my, um, one of my habits that is not great is that when I get into a discussion with someone about facts, I love to go back and fact check the conversation afterwards. You know what I'm talking about? I'm like, I'll just Google that. When I'm wrong, I feel no need to let anybody know. But when I am right, what is the first thing you think I want to do? Text that person, yes. Here is the link. I'm like, oh, when that comes up at me, I'm like, wow, my desire to be proved right is very intense in my life. But what Paul does is he calls that empty. That's vain glory. That at the end of the day, this agenda, what, what, what is this all about? If you had to put this in one word, what's at the center of this agenda? Me, yes. You guys could write this sermon yourselves. Okay. At the center of this is me. And what Paul is saying is that this way of living is, is ultimately empty. And that when this is what we dedicate ourselves to, it is always going to betray us. And it's always going to lead to us betraying ourselves. It's painful, isn't it? Because we never actually get what we're looking for here. And so instead... Paul calls us to put down our agendas, our glory, our own honor, or need to be right being at stake, and he tells us to pick up something else instead. And the thing he asks us to pick up is humility. Okay, we gotta talk about this word for a second. Humility, uh, in the time that Paul was writing this, not a positive word. People did not like this word, okay? This kind of had the connotation of, uh, of someone being subservient, and kind of groveling, right? But Paul says, no, 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 this is actually something that we should celebrate. That what Paul is telling us is this is actually a place of great strength for us. That in this place of being weak and acknowledging our weakness, that in that place, Paul says, we're made strong. 
And it's, it's really important when we think about humility to talk about what we're not talking about, okay? Humility is not self-abasement. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Okay, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And he says that if you were to meet someone who was, who was actually humble, you would not walk away thinking about how much that person beat up on themselves because that's just a different way of being self-focused. What you would walk away being aware of is that that person really cared for you because that's a person who's able to turn away from their own interests and look and, and care about yours. So that's, that's this idea of humility. If you were to think of, if this is me-centered, then what would be at the center over here? You, God, us, okay. Well, I was gonna write the word others, being others-centered. You guys are doing great. Love the participation, okay. That what Paul is commending here is a view of our life where we are others-centered. So that's the reality. We are always living out of one of these two places. It's either me, I feel like I'm doing, what is this, I'm thriller? It's either me or it's others. Those are the two places that we can be living out of, okay? That's the reality. But here's the rub, is that as people, okay, who are caught in the vortex of sin, our humanity is always pulling us here. The gravitational force of our lives is always that we would be living out of this place of selfish ambition and vain conceit. That's our, that is our default position as humans. And I will tell you, as 21st century Americans, this is, this is This is like the water that we swim in. There's this, sociologist will tell us that there's kind of a continuum of cultures that are individualistic and cultures that are collectivist, right? So you have some, some cultures where people tend to value individual achievement. And you have other cultures where people tend to value the achievements or the well-being of the group. So it's the well-being of myself, the well-being of the group. If you were to put those things on a scale, where do you think that, that our current culture would fall? On this side, right? like across studies, across science, the, the U.S. always ranks at the far, far, far end of an individualist culture. That's just the way that we are. It's in the way that we talk about politics, right? We, ta- we love to talk about rights in America. I'm not saying rights are bad. I'm just helping you understand that this is so pervasive for us, okay? Whether it's gun rights or whether it's gay rights, we're always talking about our rights, our autonomy. It's true in the way that we talk about our economy that the most important thing that we can be about is our self-interest. And again, I'm not even offering that as a critique. I'm just saying that's true about the world that we live in. And even when we, ta- when we read leadership books, they always talk about what? Enlightened self-interest. They say, actually, it's better for your bottom line if you put others' needs above your own. But what's the ultimate thing we're still chasing here? Our own bottom line, right? So this world that we live in, we're, we're conditioned always to be thinking about our self-interest. And it's true, especially as, as people have more money. That's just like a reality of wealth, is that one of the things that wealth does is it insulates us from our need for interdependence with other people. Right, like I think about this when it comes to asking for rides from the airport. I don't have to ask for rides from the airport because I can just, I can just get an Uber. So if I have enough money, I can actually pay to not need anybody. When I'm sick, I don't have to go to the grocery store and I don't have to ask you to do it for me. I can just use ClickList. And again, I'm not trying to say that any of these things are bad or that it's like it's bad to use Uber. That's not the point, okay? The point is, is that 
our lives and the way that we live, it's really easy for us to insulate ourselves from this idea of interdependence. It's easy for us to think that we don't actually need it. The world that we live in, the, the air that we breathe is constantly communicating to us that this, is, that this is actually a good thing, that this is the highest good for us. So that's the rub. And we have to acknowledge, we have to acknowledge that collectivist cultures have their own problems with self-interest. This is not just a thing that individualistic cultures struggle with. Collectivist cultures struggle with it too, it just takes a different form. And it's probably a form that a lot of us are actually very familiar with in our own individual hearts. Like, have you ever been loved by someone because they need to be needed by you? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's, that's a way of actually making others' interest about myself. And that's the danger of collectivist cultures. But it's a danger that we are also familiar with in our own hearts. I want you to want me. I need you to need me. I'm begging you to beg me, right? This is, this is the old uh, for you, for me. I'm gonna do for you, beca- but actually what I'm doing for you, it's actually me doing for me. Like I, I knew this... I knew this guy growing up who loved to hold doors open for people, which is very polite, right? That's a very kind thing to do, except he always needed to hold the door for you. So if you were going through two doors, he would hold the first door, and then he would run around you and hold the second door. You're like, come on, man. I could hold the door for myself, right? Just like, this is, this is not helpful. It's a for you, for me. It's true when someone won't, won't let you help them because they're a they're afraid of being helped. Yeah, I'm happy to help you whenever you need it, but I'm totally okay. I'm totally, I'm totally independent. I don't need your help ever. That's just a different expression of the for me. Okay, now you're seeing a little bit more of the rub here. The problem is that even as we are trying to be others-focused, what we can't escape is, our, is actually the fact that we're me-focused. There is, n- apart from Jesus, there is no way out of this trap that this vortex is so strong that even when, we're, even when we think we're doing our best to live for others, we're often actually living for ourselves. And so the solution here, the remedy, if you want to use the third R, okay, is that we would take the others and what would go in the middle is actually Jesus, yes. Always the answer at church, everyone. You're doing so, you're doing it, okay. Christ here, that what we would do instead of putting others at the center of our lives, instead of putting ourselves at the center of our lives, that Christ would be at the center of our lives. And we get that from Paul in verses one and two. So if there is any, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If there is any Paul is making this emotional appeal to the Philippian church. If there is any. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. Is there any, we'll we'll try that again. Is there any encouragement in Christ? How much is there? A lot. (laughs) It's abundant. It's more than you could ever ask or imagine. So much. So when Paul is saying, is there any? Yes, more than you could ever imagine. Is there any comfort from the love of God for you? Is there any comfort in that? Yes, how much? So much! A lot! Yes, thank you, Rowan. 
Is there any participation in the Spirit? Is there any fellowship with God because of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you? Yes. How much? So much. Is there any? Yes, it's abundant. And then he says, any affection and sympathy. Is there any affection for you in God? Does God, does God have affection for you? So much. And guys, this, this can, do not lose this. It is so easy for us to think about the love of God. Maybe this is just me, but I don't think it's just me. It's so easy for us to think about the love of God as this formal attribute of God. That God loves us, but we wonder if he likes us. Do you ever wonder that? What this word affection reminds us of is that your God does not only love you, that that love actually manifests itself in an affection for you. It's the same word that Paul uses when he says that he yearns for his friends. That same word Paul is using here to describe the fact that your God loves you, that he desires you, that he, that he rejoices over you with singing. He has great affection for you. He has sympathy for you. He has compassion for you. He is overflowing with mercy for you. That when you are in Christ, that is true about God's disposition toward you. Is there any? Yes, so much. Guys, and this is where the gospel, this is where the gospel triumphs over every other worldview. That triumphs over secular humanism that says, hey, it is ju just doing what's good for other people is like the best that we can hope for in the world. Because, because when we're in that place, all that's ever gonna do is suck us back into the vortex of me. And when we put Christ here and, and we remember the great affection that he has for us, now we're free from this whole inner dialogue where we're, where we're trying to mince our motives and figure out, am I loving others? Am I loving myself? The question we get to ask is, Jesus, you have such great affection for me. What does it look like for me to pour that out? And guys, the applications of this are legion. There are so many applications of this. And if what you're looking for is the right answer every time, you're missing the point. The goal is, the, the goal, what Paul is directing us toward is this, this great affection that has been poured out on us. Now we get to dream about with God, how would we pour that affection out on each other? This is the music that we have been called to dance to that you've been called to, to dance in the overflowing abundance of the triune God's love and affection for you. This dance of interpersonal relationship that we're all doing with each other, the music that we're moving to is the music of God's love for us. And verse two tells us what that looks like. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is saying, I want the affection of Christ to transform the way that you think. He wants us to have the mind of Christ. And this is a theme throughout Philippians. This, this word for mind, for thinking, is used all throughout Philippians. And what Paul is encouraging us toward is that would you, would you let the gospel song be so strong, would it get so stuck in your head that that is gonna start to color everything about the way that you see the world? 
that the framework that we use for interpreting the world is the framework of God's great affection for us, his sympathy for us, his, his encouragement for us, the fellowship that we have for him, the great comfort that we have in his love, the joy of the gospel. And he's encouraging that in us, not just as individual people, but that that would be the place that we find our unity as the body of Christ. Would be that, that we're all tuning in to that song, that that's the song that is being sung over all of us, and that that would then draw us together. And what's important that we admit there is that that desire for unity is not a call for uniformity. That that call for unity does not mean that we are gonna experience uniformity in all of our opinions on this side of heaven. One day, when we are in a new heavens and a new earth, I don't think we're gonna fight about various opinions anymore. That when we know as we are fully known, we're gonna experience the harmony that comes from having all of our minds set on Christ in the exact same way. But in the meantime, guys, there are gonna be a lot of things that we disagree on. Paul knows that. And he's not calling us to pretend like that's not true. If we're gonna be if we're going to be honest, people in this congregation, guys, have different ideas about vaccines, don't they? That's true. That's going to continue to be true. And we could spin that out into so many. People in this congregation have different views about politics. That will always continue to be true. I hope it is. Because if that's not true, if we get here and realize that everyone in this room has all the same opinions about us on everything, it means that now this room has become an interest group or an affinity group. That what this group has been a, is now becomes about, what this church has then become about, is about us coming together and conforming all of our own ideas rather than coming together around the union that comes from us all listening to the same song, which is the song of the gospel. And the reason that we can take this perspective, that we could actually engage each other with that kind of humility that says, I, and this is crazy, this kind of humility, it's hard to imagine that, it, that it, it, it's real and that it exists, but it, but it does. And the idea of this kind of humility is that we could actually have views and places where we disagree and we could admit that that's true. So coming in here doesn't mean ignoring that, all of, that we have differences of opinion and belief about certain things. But actually the humility that we're talking about here is that we would be able to come together and that we could even discuss and talk about those things. That we could even say to each other, I think that you are wrong. And I think that I'm right. That doesn't change my affection for you. You think that you're right and that I'm wrong. Let's talk about that. And maybe we don't actually move in our opinions at all but there's still a place for us to do the dance of humility in that place. I just want to talk about some of the applications of that for us as a community. As we are coming back together, I will tell you guys this will be tested. And one of the things that has been so encouraging to me over this time is the maturity that, that our church has demonstrated in the midst of a lot of differences. Like in the middle of a very uh, fractious political season, in the middle of a lot of debates about a lot of things, about masks and mask mandates, all of those things, it has been a great joy for me as someone who's trying to lead this congregation and in this congregation, the unity that you guys have displayed for each other with people who have different opinions than you. That has been very encouraging. And I just want to encourage you that those opportunities for that kind of maturity, they're going to continue to present themselves as we get back together, okay? 
one of the things that we're talking about is now that some of these, now that we're, now that we're learning different things about the virus, right? Now that the CDC is making different recommendations, how, how are we going to do church together as a community? And there will be some people who want us to stay more conservative on that for longer. And there will some be, be some people who want us to go faster on changing those things. And that is, that is, guys, that is the spiritual work of maturity of us with each other is learning how we would engage in that together. That's not something that's like separate from gospel maturity. That is a part of gospel maturity. And what I'm not telling you is that I'm gonna have all the right answers on that or that the leaders in our congregation are gonna have all the right answers on that. What I'm inviting you to is that what, we would, that what we, we would be about as a congregation as we're trying to figure those things out is that we, would be s- that we would be reminding ourselves that we are all dancing to the same song, which is the great affection that our Jesus has for us. And that as we work out our differences in those things, that we would be doing that with humility. Banks agrees, yes, okay. So, that, so that's one application. Again, we could talk about these all day. Another one, uh, one of the things that is going to be challenging for us in getting back together is that we have a lot of roles that need to be filled for us to make Sunday happen. That's just true. That setting this room up, uh, it, it takes people. And that having our kids back in Kittown, which we are all very thankful for, it takes people. It's the same thing for worship to happen. Worship to happen, it takes, it takes people. And it's easy to forget this sometimes, five years in for some of you, but our church is still in a startup phase. That's just the reality of, of where we are. And the, friends, the gift of that is that w- we can't function with church as a place that we come to consume. If all of us are coming here to consume church, it just, it just won't happen. And that's a gift to us. Because it means it requires, our per- it requires our participation to make Sundays happen. And what it reminds us of is that this is actually a place, even on Sundays, that we get to experience this give and take of interdependence. That for you to be sitting here and doing church this morning, is, that can happen because other people came to set up. And it can happen because other people are watching our kids. And that is a beautiful gift that they're giving us, not something that would shame us. But the dance of interdependence there is that then we would say, okay, Lord, how are you asking me now to be involved in that dance? I'm encur- I would encourage you to think about that, pray about that. <laughs> and the answer, I'm saying this with a lot of love, the answer cannot be um, no. <laughs> Our church is too small for that, okay? The answer isn't, ah, you know, I just don't think I'm being called to serve right now. You are. <laughs> this is the call, people, okay? Now, how and when and what that looks like, and we're all facing a lot of things, that is all very true. Okay, we have all been through a lot in the last year. But if that is a reason for us not to serve each other, we're never going to serve each other. Because the pressures of our life are always going to push us back to this place. The pain of our life, if we're letting that decide, is always going to push us back to this place. If we decide whether or not we're going to live in this place or this place based on how much the other people in this room annoy us, we're never going to live in this place. And, and when we're doing that, what we're depriving ourselves of is experiencing the joy that Jesus has for us because our Jesus is the one who gave himself and set down his own interests. That we don't have to look out for our interests because we have someone who has already done that for us and that is our Jesus. 
In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he, he tells people, come to me, take my burden upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light for I am gentle and lowly in heart, he says. That lowly in heart is the same word for humble that Paul uses. That our Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. It's that affection for us that pulls us back to this place. It's that affection for us that empowers our service. It's that affection for us that models for us what it looks like to live in humility. Guys, another place we get to ask this question, oh, so good. We hope and pray that there will be other people who join this community, right? Amen. Yes, I'm gonna ask that one more time, yeah? Do you hope and pray that other people would join this community? Yes, okay, as that happens, the question we get to ask is what are we gonna require of those people before they would belong here? Are we gonna require that they, they believe all the same things we believe? We already talked about the fact that's, that can't happen because we all believe different things about a lot of things. Are we gonna require even that they believe like we believe? We, I, I hope not. And this isn't a question that we're answering theoretically like for all of us. This is a question that you have to answer in your heart. What are you going to require of someone who walks in this door as to whether or not you will allow them to belong here with us? Whether or not you will choose to do this dance of interdependence with them? I hope that there are people who come in this door who don't already believe all the same things we believe about the gospel. Maybe you're here and that's you. Awesome. We hope that that happens. We pray that that happens. And in no way am I saying that we're loosening our hands on the, our, our commitment to the, to the truth of the gospel. But what I'm saying is, is that we can be so confident in the affection that God has for us that we can invite other people to come and dance with us regardless of, of whether or not they believe those same things. That we can actually look not only to our own interests but to, the, but to, but to your interests. To the people who would come here and who are asking the question if we belong, do I belong? And, and here's the thing, is that as we are all coming back together after a year of being disconnected, we're all asking that same question to some degree, aren't we? Do I still belong here? Yes. There are no preconditions for you doing that dance of interdependence here. You're invited to it. And that's not just a truth that gets said up here. That's a truth that gets lived out in our interactions with each other that as we do that, we get to experience more and more the joy and affection that our Jesus has for us. Okay, I gotta do this last illustration because I was really excited about it, okay? Have you ever been to a silent disco? Yes, someone has? I love it. I have not, but the idea of it is super interesting to me, okay? So the idea of a silent disco, it's like going to a dance party, but the music is not being played on speakers. The music is being played on headphones. So you would show up to this dance party and everybody's dancing, but if you didn't have headphones in, you couldn't hear the music. That, that is a, that's my dream for our community, that we would be like one giant silent disco party. That the headphones that you have on, that the, that the, the song that, that you would be hearing day in and day out, every minute of every day, would be the, the song of God's affection for you. And that that song would be so loud, that it would be so joyous, that you would be out dancing and <laughs> dancing in the joy of that song everywhere. 
here on Sundays and out in our community. And that actually, when we get to spot each other out in our community, we're both doing the same dance. And then other people, when they come in here, they're gonna wonder, what is happening here? Why are all these people dancing like this? And we can say, hey, come and tune into this music of God's affection for you. But as we're out in the community dancing like that, it's not gonna look like people expect. Great. Let me tell you about the music of God's affection for me and what it means, what it looks like for you to step into the affection of God for you. That we would be a giant, silent disco (laughs) day in and day out. Okay, let me pray for us. (laughs) Uh, Father, your affection for us, Lord, is so... Uh, so great. And we, we confess that our grasp on that is, uh, is, is so loose. And Lord, we, we praise you and thank you for the fact that your love for us does not depend on how much we understand or grasp that love for us. And Lord, we pray that as a community that you would be maturing us into people uh, who know what that song sounds like, that we're singing it over each other and for each other and that we're dancing with each other, Lord, in gospel interdependence. Would you make that, would you make that true in our hearts? Amen.